Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since two thousand thirteen, Bombus has donated over one hundred million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over one thousand one hundred and fifty-seven days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. That's bombus.com/acast code acast. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk again, and uh, it was particularly good to meet you for dinner and a beer in Dublin um, Tuesday night. Um, it was it was it was an interesting experience. We met after eight o'clock. Uh, we went into three restaurants around the Baggett Street area. Um, we were politely told to leave each one because we didn't have a reservation, and uh, we eventually got a nice restaurant, uh, but. It's indicative, I guess, of uh, how Dublin has come back to life. Uh, a lot of tourists around the place again, which is fantastic. But I think it's also indicative of the problems restaurants are having because at the restaurants, we were told that there were no tables available. You could see empty tables, but they obviously haven't got the staff to deal with it. So uh, it's another indication of the staffing issue in the hospitality sector particularly. But um, it's a staffing issue that is common to a lot of industries at the moment. If you look at Dublin Airport, for example, the chaos that's ensuing out there at the moment. And um, I know when you were going back to France uh, yesterday morning, you had some strange experiences in Dublin Airport. Tell us about it. Well, before I get to that, Jim, I think I'd like to reflect on our experiences around the Baggett Street, Marion Row area of Dublin, as you mentioned, um, you said that we were politely turned away from a, at least three different restaurants. I'm not sure that we were politely turned away, Jim. I think no, there was, I was a bit being, of an attitude. I was being polite, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're being ironic, I think, is probably the... I, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There was definitely an attitude about, you know, how dare you even cross our threshold without a reservation, get lost, which, you know, I think would probably put a lot of people off. But anyway, um, who knows? But one thing I would like to do is give a plug for the restaurant that we did go to, 
the other hand has never done restaurant reviews before, but I think we should start. And um, it was called Sakura, I believe. What was the the exact street it was on, Jim? Do you remember? Uh, it's 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 um, Upper next, Bagger Street, ne- yes, next, next to ne- Marion Tes- Row, yeah. And next to Tesco, that Tesco yes. Express thing there, or very close yes. to it, so people get a sense of where it is. And it's it's got a funny front door, um, and probably doesn't look to be the most come in and have a good time type front door. Not exactly the the welcome that I think many restaurants uh, do or should have. But once you're inside, I have to say, I thought it was fantastic. Both the, the staff, the service was great. They're really nice, really friendly, really welcoming. And the Japanese food, if you like Japanese food, it really was top quality at a reasonable price. So I think this comes from me anyway. I don't know what you think. The first restaurant recommendation from the other hand for Sakura in, in the centre of the I think there are a couple of other branches of this restaurant. I've eaten in the other one further down the road, um, which comes from me anyway, equally recommended. But a terrific place. What did you think? Uh, yeah, Chris, I never thought I'd um, make a living out of restaurant reviewing, but I would agree with you 100%. Uh, it was lovely. Uh, the customer service was absolutely fantastic. And um, the food was also fantastic. But I'm prepared to tolerate you know, food that's less than fantastic if the customer service is very good. I just think customer service is so important. Uh, but in this case, you got everything. You got great customer service. You got great food. And um, it was very reasonably priced. So in hindsight, I was thrilled that we got um, impolitely turned away from the three or other restaurants we tried, which are well-established restaurants. And uh, to be honest, the attitude I got from all three, I'm not sure I'll be darkening their doors again. Whereas uh, this Japanese restaurant, um, I'll be back there at the first opportunity. So, uh, yeah, first restaurant review, definitely a thumbs up. Great stuff. Perhaps listeners would let us know if they think our restaurant tastes um, <laughs> are, should be more widely shared than they, than they are. Or that we should stick to economics, perhaps. Indeed, indeed. Let's leave it to, to other people to judge that one. You asked me about my experience in Dublin Airport yesterday, which um, on various levels was extraordinary. Um, I inevitably turned up a, a wee bit early, although, of course, you, one is able to check on the website as to the length of the security queues in each terminal. So it didn't look too bad. In the end, it was about 30, 40 minutes going through the security queue of Terminal 2, because I was flying with Aer Lingus, and Aer Lingus told me when I checked in online that I was flying from Terminal 2. That's the Aer Lingus terminal, after all. Um, and I went through the queue. A couple of tips for the, for the queue. One is um, try not to look at the other people, what they're doing, because one of the things that's happened, as I think as a result of the pandemic or I don't know what, is that an awful lot of people have forgotten how to travel or perhaps are travelling for the first time, have never travelled in their lives, because they certainly behave as if they are, because they actually employ somebody in security now to walk up and down the lines, not just where you do the baggage security thing, where you put it in the, in, the, in the boxes and things like that. Somebody actually is walking up and down saying, take out all your liquids, take out all your iPads and laptops, otherwise you will be making this experience even worse than it needs to be. And everybody looks at him and nods and says, no, we haven't got any liquids, we haven't got any iPads. And then when it comes to the actual putting the bags on the belt, guess what happens? <laughs> oh, liquids and iPads. Was I supposed to do my liquids and my iPads? Oh, oh, I didn't realise. Um, it's quite extraordinary, and um, uh, there is a, there is a certain nationality. I won't um, 
uh, be racist or, or nationalistic or, or some, anything ist about it, but they reside on the other side of the Atlantic, who I have to say are spectacularly stupid when they travel. Certainly if they're traveling through Dublin Airport, extraordinary stuff. Anyway. Chris, uh, remember, we have listeners on that side of the ocean, okay? Ah, uh, yeah, but, I, you know, they, there's many countries on that side of the ocean. I'm not being very specific. Um, <laughs> so where was I? Oh, yes, yeah, so you go, I get, man, get through after all of this, which is a bit frustrating, but it isn't the worst in the world, and certainly nothing like what everybody experienced last weekend. And then I look up, and it says, um, it's 12 minutes to my gate, and it's gate 355. And I, my heart sinks at this because I know that gate 355 is not in Terminal 2, it's in Terminal 1. And I also, because the last time I, I went through, the last two times actually I've gone through Dublin Airport, I've had the experience of being told to go to Terminal 2, but my plane was actually taking off from Terminal 1. Um, but I hadn't experienced the horrors of gate 355 before yesterday. So off I trundle in, in that three-day that three-day camel ride that you have to do between Terminal Two and Terminal One, and there comes three five five, which you have to go down an escalator or some steps to get to. And honest to God, Jim, when you get there, or at least yesterday, at about ten o'clock in the morning, it was like the fifth circle of Dante's hell. It really was. It was a, one of those low-ceilinged cattle sheds that airports seem to be able to design to perfection around the world, not just in Dublin. Um, where uh, there are a few seats, but there were 10 planes going that morning, uh, or at least that in, during that hour, 60 minutes or so, that I was around that, this gate 355. Um, 10 different flights, all with 355 against their names on the monitor. And so there were 10 groups of 150 or so people, all in this cattle shed down low in, in the, the bowels of Terminal 1. And gate 355, as it turns out, is not a gate at all. It's a bus stop. And what it does is it, it has one door with one person um, helping at the door after a fashion, people to get on buses that are noticeable mostly by their absence. And because there aren't many buses coming to gate 355 to take you to where you eventually have to go to get on board the plane, people are just milling around in this cattle shed where the air conditioning can't cope with all of these people. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's an absolute disgrace. The, 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 there is a tannoy system where an announcement is being made saying, please, and what the tannoy system says is get on the bus um, and go to your proper gate. And, of course, there is no bus, or at least only intermittently, so everybody is just standing there getting slowly crushed, more and more busy as more and more people are coming, more and more people getting fretful because their flight at the proper gate has been called. And they, there's no way you can actually get to the proper gate unless the bus comes, and it doesn't come, at least not until um, it's a little bit late. So it was just a complete mess, a complete um, farce of um, certainly nothing resembling a functioning airport. It's something you would normally expect to find in, a, frankly, a third-world airport. And I don't understand why it is done in this way in, in Dublin Airport, and it was an absolute disgrace. Of course, the shopping experience in Dublin Airport is always magnificent. And that's, I think, the fundamental problem with uh, Dublin Airport, and indeed many airports, is that their, their basic raison d'etre, the thing that they're supposed to do is to get people on and off planes safely, is nowadays an ancillary activity. It's just supplemental to the core business, and the core business is selling you as much perfume, booze, and cheap tat as you can possibly shovel down our 
get or extract money from our wallets for. And so having lost sight of the basic function of what the airport is, it falls down on um, what its basic function is, which is getting people on and off planes efficiently and safely. And um, it, it, honestly, it, I can't imagine what it was like last weekend, but yesterday at gate 355, all I can say, Jim, is if when you arrive at the airport next time and you see that you're on gate 355, turn around, get back in a taxi, if you can find one, um, and go home, have a nice cold glass of wine, because it would be a far better experience than the, um, cu- cu- the, the as I say, the hellhole, the, um, the absolute awful experience that, that is gate 355. You have been warned. Interesting. Yeah, sounds like a, an absolute fiasco. Um, I saw a tweet from an RTE journalist um, earlier this week who was um, referring to all of the negative commentary about the chaos at Dublin Airport last Sunday, particularly. And uh, he was basically saying that people who are in this queue should really think about their position of privilege in life. Here they are flying do they need to be flying? Um, and if, if they don't need to be flying, well, then what are they complaining about? Uh, I thought it was one of the most bizarre interventions that I've, I've, I've ever seen, to be honest. And um, it, it just shows how some people working in public sector organisations like RTE can actually um, become so ensconced in their own little worlds that uh, they lose all touch, I think, with... Um, the real lives of people. Um, incidentally, I should also say that my son flew out of Dublin Airport today at lunchtime and uh, he got through the queues in 20 minutes. So it's not universally bad, but um, it appears to be a totally chaotic situation. But uh, I don't know what your experience is in other airports, but I, from what I read, uh, it is not unique to Dublin. There's been a lot of problems, for example, in Brussels, lots of problems in Manchester. So... Um, what, oh yeah, what absolutely. Is, what, Jim. what is going on? And I also actually, before I hand back to you, Chris, I, I also you know look back at the. I was watching the Champions League final last um, Saturday night. Disappointed, Liverpool lost to Real Madrid. I have to say, but the chaos at that game. I mean, what is going on in the world? The total inability to deal with issues and to provide service is is extraordinary. Yeah, I think that it's a universal problem. It's not the airport thing is not restricted to Dublin. Of course, it isn't. Uh, when I flew into to Dublin on Monday, I came from uh, an airport in France where there was uh, an equal amount of different chaos because a particular British airline, at least I think it is British, called Jet Two, had two flights to Manchester from France. Uh, up on the board. Um, One, there was no information at all, and the other was showing at least five hours late. So there were two plane loads of people in this particular waiting area, which they share it with Ryanair and a couple of other airlines. Um, I was on the Ryanair flight to Dublin, and um, it was chaos. Uh, There were people trying to phone the Jet 2 phone number back in the UK, and, of course, the airline wasn't answering the phone at all. And more generally, the notion that you were getting any information as to what was happening, why, and would you even get out back home that day, um, there was no information coming. And I think that's the biggest criticism 
one of many, actually, that one would label at these organisations is the shutdown of the information flow at these critical times, is that they just don't tell people what's going on. They're dishonest in the sense that they say nothing at all. Um, they often lie explicitly, but most of the time they just say nothing. They just say, I don't know. I don't know where your plane is. I don't know what time you're getting home. I don't know. And, and of course, the, the person on the ground, the, the agent or the rep, often doesn't know. Um, it's the people back in head office. I have a theory, Jim, as I always do, actually, about why this is happening. I don't think there's a single explanation. It wouldn't be that crass to say that such a complex phenomena of all these organisations falling over at the slightest sign of trouble, it has a single explanation. But I do think there is one big factor amongst others. But the biggest factor of all is that the way all of these different organisations are run, from airports to banks to our gas companies, our, um, all of our utilities, our phone companies, mobile phone companies, uh, the television service companies, whether they are public or private sector, actually, I think they're victims of a very modern phenomena, which is that you only make progress as an executive in these organisations up the greasy pole uh, by being a cost-cutter. And different organisations do it differently, and it happens to a greater or lesser extent in different organisations, but I've seen it, particularly in banks that I've worked for, people making very successful careers, mostly out of cost-cutting, not out of strategic planning or doing any good uh, business development work. I mean, all of these things can lead to career success, but if there's one guarantor of career success in all of these organisations, it's cost-cutting. Now, that's all of our faults because we often demand very cheap prices from, from these organisations, at least we did before the era of inflation. Um, uh, so I think we're all in this together. The stock market is a big problem. The stock market is now so short-term, it demands immediate profits. And when a company does spend money, for example, on investing uh, for the future, or God forbid, in spare capacity, the stock market punishes uh, that company with driving its share price down. Cash is king, has been for years in the stock market, and the way in which you burn through cash is by investing. And so our, a lot of corporate investment rates have been far lower than they should have been. And too many companies now have cut costs such that they are structurally impaired. Now, cutting costs, if you're uh, business, whether it is in the private or the public sector, has inefficiencies, is obviously a good idea. Make your machine, make your organisation leaner, meaner and fitter to meet the challenges, deliver on what it's supposed to do, give the customers what they want. All of these things are great and cost-cutting is often part of that. But you can have too much of a good thing. And I think that there are so many organisations out there that are responding to, the, to incentives to cut costs, not just to trim inefficiencies, but to cut into muscle and eventually to start cutting into the bones of the organisation such that the structural integrity of these organisations becomes fundamentally impaired. And that the slightest sign of trouble, the slightest blow of the wind in the wrong direction, these organisations now just simply fall over, like Dublin Airport. And... Uh, and uh, indeed other airports and airlines, just as a, a, a bigger victim of all of this as well. So I think that we, we have these organisations that essentially are not fit for purpose. They've no spare capacity, there's no contingency, there's nothing um, for, for, for rainy days. And God forbid that they should ever have invested for growth, because um, that's not allowed anymore in, in the stock market either. So I think we've got a real infrastructure problem. Infrastructure is traditionally thought of as bridges and roads and those sorts of things. But I think if you broadly define 
society's infrastructure to include all of these quite basic services, banks, insurance companies, phone companies, and airports and airlines. You know, try phoning your bank, try phoning the gas company, try phoning the electricity company, at least certainly in the UK. Um, you're lucky to get a human being at all. You're lucky to get a human being on the day that you phone. Um, and you'll never get your problem resolved satisfactorily. We've all, we're all living this. We're all paying this time tax. We all think that we're getting these cheap services, these, or, or at least they used to be cheap. Um, but the, 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 the price that we pay is the time tax that's imposed on us when we stand in these incredible security queues and when we're left hanging on the phone for days for dealing with simple queries. These are the prices that we pay for these companies not investing in their businesses. So we're all in it, but I blame the corporate culture of cost-cutting. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I, I have to agree, to be honest, because uh, I guess banking is the one I'd feel most strongly about. Uh, you look at the strategies that have been employed by the two Irish banks over the last few years, um, and the strategy has been basically based on cost-cutting. They're closing branches, they're letting experienced staff go, um, customer service is being significantly diminished and they say that this is you know it's the modern world they're moving increasingly towards greater use of technology but it strikes me that the technology actually isn't keeping up with uh, the pace at which they're letting staff go and closing customer interfacing branches and so on and um, every time I hear the ad from AIB about backing Brave um, it drives me apoplectic, to be honest, because um, I think AIB is doing anything but that. Uh, cost cutting is about the only thing it's doing. And um, I, I, I hear, OK, a, a lot of staff have been left go in recent years, serious staff shortage in certain areas, um, a lot of institutional memory gone. And now because all of the KBC and Ulster Bank accounts are being transferred basically to the two main banks here. Uh, they are having to take on extra staff to deal with that, but they're taking on much lower paid staff, um, staff with significantly lesser skills than those that left. Uh, so it's it's basically a move back to a term that you might have remembered from your early days in Ireland called yellow pack banking. Um, and it strikes me that that's where we're going at the moment. And the bottom line is that the quality of service you get from banks now unless you're a seriously high net worth individual or a significant corporation with clout is pretty dismal. And um, for the, the ordinary person on the street trying to get a banking service, it is just incredibly difficult at the moment. And, and as you say, that does percolate through the delivery of most public services at this stage, because um, at the end of the day, it is clear that the um, the whole thing is being driven by cost cutting and shareholder value and so on. Um, mo moving on, Chris, I think we, we've, we've probably spent enough time doing restaurant reviews um, and talking about customer service and airports and stuff. But over the last few days, before I met you on Tuesday night, I was speaking at an event for the Professional Risk Managers Institute, that's PRMIA. And this morning I was speaking at the annual risk conference of the Society of Actuaries in Ireland. Um, addressing the issues of risk, basically. And um, I suppose given my background, I was focusing in on economic risk, financial market risk. And of course, you can't talk about those two risks without 
talking about political risk. And I fear I left both audiences um, absolutely, absolutely, if they believe me, um, which they may not, of course, but anyone that sort of believe me, um, I think would be left in a very nervous state at the moment because, Jesus, the level of risks you can identify out there at the moment um, on the political front, you obviously have what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. You have the increased civil war that's becoming more and more evident in the United States and the specter of Donald Trump returning to office in 2024 is very real at this stage because the Democrats don't appear capable of actually coming up with an individual that could remotely challenge Trump at this juncture. Um, you look at what's happening in the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson, um, the whole attitude towards the um, Northern Ireland Protocol and so on. Uh, then you look across many other parts of the world at the whole era of the strong man. So polit geopolitically, it, the world is a pretty scary place at the moment. And, and from a financial market point of view, the financial risks seem very significant. We have equity markets incredibly volatile and vulnerable. We have government bond yields rising. We have central banks increasing interest rates in an environment where growth almost everywhere except Ireland is clearly starting to show signs of slowing down. Um, you have cryptocurrency, you know, performing very poorly. And I suspect there will be financial casualties as a result of that. I won't be one, let it be said. But um, there's a lot of stuff going on in financial markets at the moment that certainly highlight risk. And then, of course, the third area that feeds into all of that is the economic risk. And um, I suppose the, the biggest issue there is the fact that uh, with inflation rising, we got an 8.1% inflation rate in the euro area earlier this week. So with inflation rising, central banks are being forced to increase interest rates um, quite significantly. And there's a lot more to come. And they're doing this against a background of a significant slowdown in global growth. And I use the word significant, uh, but significant can mean anything because we really don't have a clue at this stage just how big the decline in economic activity globally is going to come, become. So um, it's a pretty risky world out there. It's a pretty scary world out there. I mean, if you were sitting on the board of a company, any company, um, and Boards have responsibility for setting the risk culture in an organisation. I mean, what would you be saying in the current environment? Well, you do, um, I think, what you've done there, Jamie, is, is I think, posit um, a not terribly rosy economic scenario for the future. It's almost an economic forecast, which, as you know, we don't do, on the other hand, because we think that economic forecasting is for the birds. But let's face it, mate, you just forecast a very bleak economic and probably political future and I think that reflects um, a couple of things. First of all, I think there's a lot of people who share your view, a lot of very sensible, uh, thoughtful analysts, commentators, uh, politicians even out there who see a lot of trouble ahead. Take Martin Wolf, who's the chief eco uh, economist for the Financial Times, an incredibly respected figure. Um, there's a great interview between him and Olivier Blanchard, who's the ex-chief economist of the IMF the other day. And Blanchard tweeted after being interviewed by Martin Wolf. You know, I've never learned so much being interviewed by a journalist before. So serious character. And if you read Martin Wolf these days, I think you would be even more pessimistic than you. Uh, but, you know, so therefore, I think 
it behoves me to uh, take the other side of the argument, just just perhaps. Chris, Chris, can I stop you a second? Actually, mm. um, what wh- what I was doing there was not presenting a forecast. Um, I was speaking at two risk-based conferences where I was outlining all of the potential risks out there. Okay. Well, it, it, <laughs> all right. I, 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 I'm and abusing, the reason, I'm, why, the reason I'm, why I wasn't forecasting is because I haven't a clue where things are going. Fair play. So it's not a forecast, but you're talking about the risks and you're talking about, let's say, one-sided risks. You're, you're, a, bit, you're a bit like the IMF in its most recent report. Brilliant um, though they are, basically can be summed up as there's a lot of downside risk, very easy to spot what they are. You ran through some of the biggest ones. The IMF also has its own list that looks very like your list. And what are the upside risks, it asked itself. And that list is very short. So we do have a a world in which risk is very biased to the the downside. And risks that we can identify. In honour of the late, great, and I use the word advisedly, Donald Rumsfeld, we also have risks that we don't know about. And um, usually what happens is as a result of things that we didn't foresee at all. We, we couldn't see coming even in a scenario-based way. So um, I think that there, there are reason, lots and lots of reasons to be very pessimistic, to be very aware of risk. You asked a very specific question. Okay, I'll answer the question that you actually asked me, which is what does a board do? What does a business do when faced with these kinds of risks? Well, you have to say, okay, well, we have to hope for the best and plan for the worst. That's what risk-based planning is, to, is, is about. And the worst outcome at the moment, the, the, or the, 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 a plausible worst outcome, is pretty bleak in terms of, for example, a global recession. Uh, nobody is forecasting one at the moment, but the chatter amongst the forecasting community is that a global recession, if it hasn't started already, it's going to start very soon. Um, it's very simple what businesses should do in those kinds of environments. Um, it should do exactly what those businesses that I talked about at the top of the show should do. It should, st- should stop spending. Um, preserve cash is something that any business should do when, when going into a downturn. So I'm, I'm now going to start commending all those firms that I criticised. Um, but at some point, just to be clear, you do need to spend money for the future but if you are worried about the future, you stop spending, you preserve cash. If you're a bank, you stop lending. Um, if you're a company, you pull back on things like dividends. You pull back on your capital spending. You stop hiring. You preserve cash. Because the, the one strategy that it behoves any business, or any board at least, but certainly any businessman or woman, is that in order to, to survive what is coming down the pipe, even though you don't know what it is, um, or be it a global recession, a financial crisis, both, or something that we can't foresee. Survival is the name of the game. You need to survive to get to the other side. You need to survive the pandemic. You need to survive the great financial crisis and all the other great downturns that we've had in the past. And the way you survive is by having enough cash. Um, so if you want to survive, start preserving cash. That's the number one thing. that um, It's very basic. It's very, it, but Chris, it's, Chris can on. I stop you a second? Is there a danger then of, self-fulfilling expectations that you actually exacerbate the problems you're trying to deal with. Oh, yeah. If, if every single firm and every single individual stops spending, then, boy, do we have that global recession. That's the, par- that's the Keynesian paradox of thrift, mate. You know that as well as I do. Um, and, and that's what happens. And that's why uh, talking ourselves into these kinds of recessions is always distinctly possible. Because if we all talk ourselves into not spending, then um, we're in trouble. But as we saw in Dublin the other day, there's certainly a lot of people 
out there spending. I can tell you, sitting here in, in a holiday sort of place in France, there's lots of people spending here as well. Um, I, on the way back from, uh, from France the other night, I bumped into somebody, a friend of mine from Dublin, who had been to the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. And he said it was fun. It was great fun. He loves cars and all that, that sort of stuff. Um, it's not me, but I can understand. It's, it's a passion. It's a hobby. But it, he was absolutely disgusted by... Um, he got somehow or other invited to a big after-party of this Grand Prix. And he said he thinks he saw 25,000 euros worth of champagne being sprayed around this party. Not, not even drunk, just sprayed around by, um, in his words, oligarch and hedge funds types. And you know what those people are like, Jim, don't you? Indeed, indeed, absolutely. So there are some... Sorry, the, the reason for that anecdote is, is because, um, A, I can tell it, and B, it's interesting in the context. There are still people, disgustingly perhaps in that context, spending money. But you're right. We, we must be very careful about talking ourselves into a recession, which is why I said at the, at the top of my answer to your original question, I'll take the other side of the argument and point out to you that, yes, stock markets are volatile, but in May, the month just ended, um, the US market went down and then went up quite a lot and ended and basically the month was a wash um ended where it started so um wasn't taking on board the incredibly gloomy scenario but you're right the, the the there are lots of reasons to be gloomy jamie diamond who is the chief executive of jp morgan one of the world's largest banks um has upped his warnings about risk for the world economy going forward he was up until recently talk when he talked to analysts and other people that he speaks to about his bank and the environment in which it operates, which is global. He was talking about his worries about an economic storm, and he's upgraded that storm to a hurricane. He's now saying that there is an economic hurricane headed our way. And I think that's kind of sort of what you're alluding to as well, and that really we have to batten down the hatches. Um, you know, as, but as you say, we have to be very careful about talking ourselves into this. And so I, I think there are reasons um, why we could be perhaps a wee bit more optimistic than that. But it's very, very hard to make that case at the moment. Yes, it is. Uh, it is just so easy to come up with this long list of extreme risks that are out there. And underlying all of that, of course, is the situation in Ukraine, um, you know, continues to bubble away um, in a pretty significant way. Um, we have no idea how and when it's going to end. Um, we have the European Union imposing further import restrictions on energy from Russia. So that is certainly going to elevate energy prices further in this part of the world. So there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff to be extremely concerned about. And I interrupted you earlier when I asked you about the question about, uh, you know, what advice a board should be giving at the or should be giving at this juncture in relation to risk or what advice you'll be giving a board um that there is the question of course of investment as well um you know do you think business investment can be justified in an environment like this where there is so much uncertainty or is that a too well, generic would, that, question that, well, it is a generic question, and inevitably then the answer becomes it all depends on the investment project that's being considered. So I said preserve cash is, an, is number one on the list of any strategy that for anybody that is concerned about risk, and that would be at the individual level, not just at the corporate level. But for a corporation thinking about investing in this risky environment, I mean, you know from your capital budgeting and investment theory work, Jim, that there are 
um, rates of return that are assumed for any investment project and that for a project to be deemed worthwhile, its payback, its rate of return on the original investment has to be a certain level to justify the investment. Remember all that stuff? Yeah, I certainly do. In this environment, you raise those hurdle rates of return. You say, well, if in the past I would have done this project if it had a rate of return of 10%, given things are so risky, I'm only going to do it if I can be reasonably sure that it's going to be 15 I'm pulling numbers out of the air for the sake of argument, but a sensible strategy for somebody worried about the future for, for having a risk-based strategy in the face of elevated risk is, as I say, to do the two obvious things, raise cash and raise hurdle rates of return. And there, there are other things, but the, these, are, these are quite basic things that, funnily enough, an awful lot of companies don't do. Yeah, Chris, I'm being a bit disingenuous asking you these questions because I am in the middle of the Institute of Directors exams at the moment. And uh, there's a lot of stuff on financial budgeting that I'm relearning after a lot of years. And uh, there's a a lot of stuff about the role of a board, particularly in relation to risk. So I'm I'm just trying to pick your brain there uh, to help me in this final exam I have at the end of June. Uh, But it's it's, it's still interesting stuff. And it's, it's really interesting to be applying the theory I'm learning in class to the real world as it operates at the moment, which is a pretty scary place. Um, There's a couple of things, Chris, that I just like to mention in relation to the impact of the war in Ukraine. Um, You you would have seen yesterday that in an overwhelming majority, in a referendum in Denmark, an overwhelming majority of Danes voted in favour of Denmark, becoming part of the EU defence strategy, uh, which is a remarkable turnaround for that country. We have Sweden and Finland applying for membership of NATO. But I I was on a conversation uh, or on a call the other day with somebody in Finland um, on the subject of alternative energy, because, you know, I've, I've spoken many times about the sense of nimbyism we have in this country in relation to wind energy, solar panels and so on. Uh, but the, the guy was saying to me that um, there was a part of the political system in Finland that was totally opposed to wind farms and alternative energy generally, uh, but that in the last three months they have done a total about turn and there is now virtually um, a seamless or a non-interrupted um, consensus. consensus in Finland about alternative energy because... Finland now recognises that the only way uh, they can deal with the Russian situation is to eliminate their dependence on Russian energy. And um, I think the rest of us should be thinking in exactly the same way. Um, I'm not saying for one moment that solar, wind, they are the solutions, the, the full solutions to the energy problem. They're not, but they have to be seen as part of a portfolio of alternative energy sources that we've just got to develop as quickly as possible. Because when we see the real impact of the further EU sanctions on energy imports into the European Union, I think we're really going to be exposed to a lot of pain at that stage. So I think anybody who doesn't recognise the importance of trying to reduce our dependence on such a dangerous source of energy, and I mean dangerous in a political sense, um, they really do need to think again. Yes, it's, as you may or may not know, and I suspect you couldn't care less, the 70th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth coming to the throne in the UK. I'm very well aware of it, and I do care less. 
um, the uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure which way that around is, Jim. Anyway, um, when she when she came to the throne, the average annual temperature for the inside of a British home was 12 degrees centigrade, and today it's 18. Wow. So uh, it's not that long ago that people lived with far less energy consumption for their homes, uh, which were far less well insulated than they are now, etc., etc. That's one little statistic that's... Uh, that's interesting. Well, Chris, Chris I, drew up, I grew up in a, a big old farmhouse in Waterford uh, where there was no heating, uh, there was condensation on the inside of the window and even frost um, during particularly cold weather. So uh, we, we have become very, very spoiled, haven't we? In that regard, certainly. Yeah. And the scope for us, you know, I think every time you switch on a light bulb or switch on your heating, um, remember that you're sending pennies to Putin. Just remember Indeed. that. Indeed. I certainly You should call I it do. there, Jim. Yeah. Good to talk, as always. Yeah. And yeah. Um, speak yeah. to you next time. Great to meet you in Dublin during the week. Yeah. And um, hopefully it happens again soon. So uh, it will, have, a, have a good weekend. Talk to you. Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.